Uh, So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, let's read it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's been said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Since Adam and Eve first fell, sin has ravaged the hearts of every generation. In Eden, Satan lured Eve away by an attack on God's character, his word, and Eve's faith in God's word. Giving into temptation, Eve's heart grew bored with the command not to eat from the forbidden tree and moved in tragic excitement toward becoming the master of her fate and the captain of her own soul. At this point, the heart of the problem became the problem of our heart. Have you ever tried to read the Bible, but as you read, it tasted stale? Have you ever heard the Psalms command you to shout for joy in the Lord, but found you had no shout and no joy? Even though on a mental level, you knew that you have every reason to to rejoice in the Lord and shout in the Lord because of what Christ has done on the cross for you. Have you ever had your hallelujah get tired? I'd love to tell you that on Sunday mornings as our family has prepped for church, that I've never struggled with apathy or disinterest, that I haven't struggled with the spiritual, spiritual lethargy that says, it's Sunday again. Got to do that church thing. Guess we got to get the 18 kids ready for church. <laughs> and, and, and that's my, my heart problem. The heart of my problem is the problem of my heart. Without the empowering help of God's spirit working in my heart, my heart tends to grow bored and apathetic toward God and his word. My sin nature and the the temptations of the evil one continuously pull me towards disinterest, doubt, disbelief related to God. Only the Holy Spirit's help will make the decisive difference in my struggle. And that's what our message is about today. The Holy Spirit's core objective in both initial salvation and throughout the Christian life is to help us with this problem of our hearts to reveal Jesus to our hearts so that God will be glorified through the church. 
The Holy Spirit strengthens believers by opening the eyes of our hearts to the riches of our redemption, both as individual believers and as a congregation. That's Ephesians 1, 17 to 18. In our passage this morning, the Spirit plants the church like a tree in the fertile soil of Christ to cause us to grow by being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, who is our life. Today's message is entitled, Rooted and Grounded or Bored. We're in week six of 13 in our Ephesians series in the multi-series theme the pastors are calling Standing Firm. And as we, as we read earlier, our passage is chapter three, verses 14 to 21. My hope this morning is that as we work through Ephesians 3, that we'll come to rely on the Holy Spirit for strength and power, just like Paul did. My prayer is that that we would increasingly become a church that's rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, growing in spiritual wisdom and insight by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this body of believers that because of what Jesus has done, that he has absorbed your wrath for our sin in our place on the cross, because of his sacrifice, we have been rescued and redeemed, forgiven, and we have been made into your holy temple, to a dwelling place for you by your spirit. And that is what we are. We pray that as we, as we read these words on the page, as we meditate on your word to us, you would enable us by your spirit to experience the truth in 3D, to experience the truth like someone inside of the church with stained glass windows that sees the light shine through and can see the beauty of the design, Lord. Help us to see that in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Ephesians three fourteen to 21. It's Paul's second prayer report of the letter where Paul explains his prayer strategy and his heart for the Ephesian church. As we've been discussing and will be evident in the passage, Paul clearly relies on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to strengthen believers' faith. After all, the Ephesian believers in Paul's day were just like us. They struggled to stand firm in a faith that was interested, passionate, and engaged with the truth. They struggled to stand firm in the war between faith and the boredom of doubt. The Ephesians' tendency to boredom with the gospel made them vulnerable to things like heresy and lust. The history books tell us they were surrounded by the earthly wealth and earthly wisdom of an affluent culture similar to America. So the Ephesian Christians were likely tempted by a thousand temptations just like us. In fact, in Acts 20, we learn that Paul, some five years prior to the writing of Ephesians, warned the Ephesian pastors that false teachers would arise from within the Ephesian church, and that Ephesian believers might be tempted either to exchange biblical teachings for heretical ones, or to exchange biblical church life for church division. So it makes sense that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul addresses those very same issues by providing solid teaching on the core truths of the Bible, of the gospel, and how to live those truths out 
as believers. But what did Paul do when faced with helping the Ephesians stay strong in their faith? Whether Paul was in Ephesus or writing to Ephesus, he preached the gospel and he prayed the gospel. In our passage, Paul asked God the Father to empower the Ephesian church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that the church would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. So the first step to understanding Paul's chapter 3 prayer is to realize that Ephesians delivers Paul's overall ministry strategy in miniature. Paul starts our passage saying in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason? Which reason is he talking about? The answer is that Paul is pointing both forward to the content of our passage and also backward to the previous chapters. Here's why. Paul has designed and laid out Ephesians into both teaching units and prayer units that are all paired up. Here's Paul's pattern in Ephesians. Three pairs of teaching and praying. That's the outline of the entire letter. Paul teaches the word in the first half of chapter 1. And then Paul prays the word in the second half of chapter 1. Paul teaches the word in all of chapter 2 and through half, half of chapter 3. And then Paul prays the word a second time in our passage this morning. Next, Paul teaches the word again in chapters 4 and 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And then in the final section, Paul commands the church to pray the word in the armor of God passage of chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. So let's just call it the word and prayer strategy for short. In his word and prayer strategy, Paul delivers divine doctrine or teaching. And then in divine dependence, he waits upon divine intervention through prayer. Understanding this pattern is key to understanding what Paul is doing in our passage, which is the second prayer section in the letter, like we said. In our passage, 3, 14 to 21, Paul is praying the content of chapters 1 through 3 and setting the stage for chapters 4 through 6. When Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, he's giving a window into how he prays for the Ephesian church, the very scripture he penned them in this letter. Paul's first step after explaining and exploring all that God's done to rescue us in Christ is chapter, in chapters 1 through 3 was prayer. I mean, the ink of chapter 3, verse 13 hadn't even dried. In the next verse, our passage, Paul was like, I'm praying this. Was Paul just excitable or spastic? Or did Paul understand something that we sometimes don't? We can observe in Paul's word and prayer strategy that Paul believed the best response to divine doctrine was divine dependence in prayer. That apart from divine intervention, the Ephesians wouldn't respond to his letter in the interest, passion, and the engagement of faith. That apart from divine intervention, the Ephesians would be bored silly with the Bible. Brothers and sisters, the same is true today. The same is true for us. Are we too smart or sophisticated 
to pray like Paul or to depend on God's grace in prayer? Are we too emotionally regulated, too logical to pray, too tired, too depressed, too busy, too mature, too advanced? If so, we're better than the apostle. But to the contrary, Paul was simply mirroring the Savior's ministry strategy. You know, Jesus, <laughs> who preached all day and prayed all night, as it were. No wonder he could sleep on a boat in a hurricane. <laughs> Talk about a supernatural power nap. But seriously, Jesus apparently prayed so much and so often that it prompted his disciples to ask, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? To which he responded with the Lord's Prayer. Today, instead of the Lord's Prayer, we have Paul's Prayer. So how does Paul pray in our passage or report on how he prays? In Ephesians 3, Paul's prayer is Trinitarian, gospel-centered, and faith-oriented. Trinitarian, gospel-centered, and faith-oriented. First, Paul's prayer is Trinitarian. I'm going to read 14 through 17a. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In verses 14 to 17a, we have a prayer to God the Father for strengthening the Ephesians' faith through the ministry of God the Spirit in order to produce corporate fellowship with God the Son. When you think about it, very Trinitarian prayer. Briefly, what do we mean by Trinity or Trinitarian? The historic doctrine of the Trinity is that according to the Bible as a whole, there is one God, three distinct persons in God, who are equally and simultaneously divine. So here's how I teach my kids about the Trinity. It's something I learned from one of my pastors back in Texas that has seemed to help, uh, you know, help my kids a lot. And so hold up one finger. Go ahead. Hold up one finger on one hand, whichever one you want, and three fingers on the other. Don't worry. It's not a cheesy analogy. <laughs> All right. Here's some questions. How many gods are there? There's only one. The Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before him, right? All right, how many persons are there in God? There are three, three distinct persons. Each is equally divine at the same time. All right, which of the three persons is divine? All of them. Each person of the Trinity is equal, equally God all at the same time. I guess I already said that. <laughs> are there three gods? No, there's only one. So put it all together, there's one God. There's three distinct persons, each equally God all at the same time. But are there three gods? No, there's only one God. So that always helps me remember all those things. So you can probably see why this orthodox and biblical doctrine has been contested throughout church history. It doesn't fit into the human intellect, does it? You try to place the oneness in the mind, and the threeness pops out. You try to put the threeness back in the mind, the oneness pops out. 
Nevertheless, Scripture and the human authors of Scripture aren't one bit stressed out by this. Exhibit A, Paul in our passage. Apparently, God isn't stressed out by his Trinitarian nature either. (laughs) Jesus believed in the Trinity. That's why when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the Father addressed him from heaven and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, Jesus was at peace. He wasn't freaking out. That's why Jesus didn't run away saying, I hear voices. Nor did he swat it at the dove to avoid bird droppings. In all seriousness, Jesus' teaching in places like John 14 is profoundly Trinitarian. Jesus believed in the singular God of Scripture, who was also three distinct divine persons simultaneously, and he didn't have an ounce of apparent distress. So, if Scripture and the God of Scripture aren't stressed out by the doctrine of the Trinity, we can relax and place our faith in scriptural revelation. So listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 once again and note the Trinitarian pattern. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't that beautiful? Notice, too, how Paul has an understanding of how each person of the Trinity is involved in redemption in distinct ways, with a special focus on the Father teaming up with the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ. In Ephesians, in Paul's theology as a whole, God the Father planned and project manages redemption from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus personified and performed redemption through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the Holy Spirit personalizes and congregationalizes redemption as he indwells each believer simultaneously and brings the truth home to our hearts. In our passage... Paul prays for God the Father to send God the Spirit to personalize and congregationalize the love of Christ. But Josh, you know, isn't the gospel supposed to be simple enough a child can understand it? That doesn't sound very simple. Yes, the gospel is simple. God saves us through faith in Jesus. The end. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so completely biblical and accurate. As we've heard the pastors teach over and over again, all of God does, all that God does. Salvation is all one unit, simple enough for a child to grasp. At the same time, the gospel is also profoundly Trinitarian. It's simple and profound at the same time. That's why our passage and others like it indicate that each person of the Trinity is involved in our redemption in distinct ways. So how can we apply this insight of Trinitarian prayer to our lives? We can apply it by praying Trinitarian prayers. In our passage, Paul has provided us with a pattern for Trinitarian prayers as well. The teamwork of the Trinity in Paul's prayer is that pattern. 
So as you pray, one way to grow is to learn to think about the ministry roles and goals of each person of the Trinity as Paul did, so that you can align your prayers with the interests of each person of the Trinity. So we've seen how Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is Trinitarian. Now let's look at how it's gospel-centered. As we can see in Ephesians as a whole, the gospel is a grand redemptive story from creation to the last day where God is the hero and we sinners are both villain and victim. At creation, humans were all intended to be one giant family in Adam and Eve, but sin turned us into a multitude of warring nation states, warring against God and warring against each other. But in Christ, through the global church God is building, God's leading history to the day when the new heavens and the new earth is home to one giant family once again, through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 14 to 15. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. As we've just reviewed, Paul isn't praying to his earthly dad. He's praying to God the Father, the same Father Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we understand that's the Father that he's praying to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who. The one who's given us everything in Christ. That Father. So Paul says in verse 15, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does that phrase even mean? How did the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ somehow become the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named? Which family spans heaven and earth? How can the families of the earth come to be fathered by the heavenly Father? And then it hits you. That's what the entire letter has explained so far, hasn't it? The family that spans heaven and earth is the church. Crafted from Jews and Gentiles through the gospel of Christ that Paul described in the previous chapter, chapters. For example, in chapter 1 we read, We're chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world in Christ. Verse 4. In chapter 1, we're redeemed and forgiven by the Father in Christ, verse 7. In chapter 1, we're sealed by the Father with the promised Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, verse 13. In chapter 2, we read, God the Father made us alive, raised us up, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ, verse 6. In chapter 2, as Gentiles, God the Father brought us near into the covenantal promises of the Old Testament in Christ, verse 13. In chapter 2, the, God the Father has made the church, both Jew and Gentile together, into a temple dwelling place for His presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Christ, verse 22. Finally, in chapter 3, we read, the mystery of the gospel is that now through the multicultural multi-ethnic, multinational church, the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed in Christ. So when Paul prays, I bow my knees before the Father 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He means that he prays to the God and Father of the entire origin to destiny story from Genesis to Revelation that he summarized in Ephesians. And we've only scratched the surface of how this prayer is gospel-centered. As Paul prays in Ephesians 3, he's fighting against spiritual weakness and doubt and boredom. He knows that this grand and glorious gospel story and all the riches of its glory is like battery acid dripping in the eye of boredom, disinterest and doubt. As Paul prays, it's like he's juicing the fruit of redemptive history and he's taking all the goodness of the gospel and praying it into the Ephesians. That's probably why he says next in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Again, the riches of the Father's glory is everything he's been teaching in the letter. When Paul thinks about all the Father has done for us in Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit, and thinks about how to pray that spiritual goodness into the life of the Ephesians, Paul says, Father, according to the riches of your glory, please pour your divine strength into the souls and the inner beings, the hearts of the Ephesians through the Holy Spirit. Paul wants to see the Ephesian church infused with gospel life. So Paul prays that way, and we should pray that way as well. Pray Paul's prayer for yourself. Pray Paul's prayer for each other. Pray Paul's prayer for your family and friends. Not as a vain repetition, as if certain words have magic power regardless of God's will and work. No, when you pray, pray in dependence on God's generosity and from the gospel understanding we're sharpening this morning. When you pray Paul's Ephesians 3 prayer, suck the glory of the riches of God's redemption out of the gospel, and with all the encouragement that you receive from it, pray that power down and into the life of whomever you're praying for. Pray like Paul in verse 16, that the Father would send the Spirit to personalize and congregationalize the power of Christ and the love of Christ deep in our hearts. As you do, watch the boredom and the unbelief flee. Watch God move. Watch his people worship. Watch God glorify himself in his timing through waves of faith springing up among us. Let it be, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, and do it in us. So to sum up, we've seen how this prayer is Trinitarian and gospel-centered. In our final section of the message, Let's look now at how Paul's prayer is faith-oriented. Faith-oriented. What's faith-oriented even getting at? I'm bringing in the word faith from Paul's use of it in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's the focal point of Paul's prayer for strength in verses 14 to 16? It's faith. As a child, I would hold a magnifying glass above an ant mound at just the right angle until a bright focal point appeared on the ant mound. And I found all kinds of fun applications for this power. (laughs) Uh In a different and more positive way, (laughs) 
Paul's prayer so far from 14 to 16 has been like a magnifying glass. The bright focal point that verses 14 to 16 have created is verse 17. The first half of the verse. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The prayer comes down to this one word, faith. Here's why this is significant to our understanding. Paul prays divine strength into the Ephesians' hearts, and the output he envisions from their heart is faith. By linking his prayer to an impact on and strengthening of faith, he's distinguishing his prayer from one for generic, nonspecific power. Power maybe like what a superhero has. In other words, Paul's not praying, God, give the Ephesians an all-purpose power that they can use for whatever their imagination sees fit. Then their enemies will shudder at their presence. He's not praying that. Paul is praying that the faith the Ephesians already have through initial salvation would be reinforced by the sustaining grace of the Holy Spirit to the effect of what Paul is going to mention in verses 17b through 19. So in our remaining time, let's look at how Paul builds the rest of his prayer around the Ephesians' faith being strengthened. Let's read what we've covered so far to get the flow of the passage. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let's focus in on so that in the beginning of verse 17. Why do you bow your knees, Paul? Why do you pray to the Father, Paul? Why do you ask that the Spirit strengthen the Ephesians, Paul? Then he answers, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. As we've already said five different ways, (laughs) faith is the focal point. Faith is the doorway into understanding the other statements in the rest of the prayer. Statements like, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The idea is that none of these statements can come true apart from faith. Strong faith, empowered faith, supplied by the Holy Spirit. Take the first and last phrases I just mentioned, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, in the first half of verse 17, and in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So these phrases link back to chapter 2, verse 22. As you remember, it says, In him, that's Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So chapter 2, verse 22, teaches us this profound gift of God's love in Christ. That not only does each believer, Jew and Gentile, together as one unified church, find their identity and salvation in Christ, but in addition, chapter 2, verse 22 says, and Paul prays in our passage, That our salvation and our identity in Christ means that Jesus Christ dwells in us by the Spirit through faith. This is too good, you guys. 
Get this. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is the fullness of God. Fully God at the same time as the Father and the Spirit. So when Paul prays, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he's praying that the Ephesians would be filled with all the fullness of God through Christ, who is the fullness of God. When Paul prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, he's simply praying the theology contained in chapter 2, verse 22. Being filled with all the fullness of God is therefore a short statement of a basic yet profound truth of everyday Christianity. God wants us to experience this. Through faith in Christ, the church becomes a holy temple where Christ dwells in our hearts by the Spirit through faith. Paul wants the Ephesians to experience it, and and God wants us to experience it, this normal reality of Christian life as well. Christ, the fullness of God, dwelling in you and me together. As the church, because of the gospel, it's the Christian's normal. But the sad reality is that we can go for even decades with only a mere spark of conscious awareness of this truth. We're subnormal. So if you don't, really, don't already dwell on this truth, dwell on it. If you don't already pray for a strengthened faith to grasp this depth of the love of Christ, pray for it. How might our lives change, our choices change, our hearts change if we were able to fully and truly grasp that in every storm, every trial, every sickness, every sorrow, every pain, even in death, Christ is in us. Christ is in us. Christ is in us. This is what it means to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Rooted and grounded in who we are by the love of Christ. In whose we are by the love of Christ. And who is in us by the love of Christ. This brings us to the remaining three phrases in the body of the prayer. Which are the second half of 17, verse 18, and verse 19. Let's look at 17, the second half. That you being rooted and grounded in love. The phrase, rooted and grounded in love, it's really Paul's effort to summarize all he's prayed for so far in the passage. We could ask Paul, Paul, what would you call God the Father sending God the Spirit to strengthen the church so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith? And Paul would respond, I'd call it being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. What a beautiful metaphor. In this analogy, faith that roots and grounds the church in love is pictured as a tree's roots that extend deep into the ground to extract water and minerals for the life of the church or the tree. The roots even spread out into a massive network that provides grounding and stability for the tree's towering structure. That's what your faith in Christ does, church as your faith perceives the presence of Christ dwelling in us. When you're rooted and grounded in in the love of Christ for you, you know who you are, you know whose you are, and you know where your life comes from in a way that persecution can't touch. 
Faith rooted and grounded in the love of God in the gospel and described in the first three chapters of Ephesians is the way God has ordained to stabilize us through trial and temptation as a church so we can stand firm. Paul's teaching in the letter drives him to this prayer for a divine assist. But it's Paul's prayer that in turn drives us back to the letter to continue to grow in our understanding of what he's praying for us. We see this in verses 18 to 19. So this is how verses 18 to 19 function in the passage. They amplify the word love in the phrase rooted and grounded in love. Here's the verses again, 17 going into 18. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. In this sort of geometric analogy of verse 18, the love of Christ for the church is perhaps like a building which the church is going out and actively measuring, taking measurements. So the breadth of God's love is X, the length, Y, the height, Z, the basement depth, F. In this analogy... Paul seems to be picturing the Ephesian church actively seeking to comprehend God's love, perhaps through studying Paul's letter or perhaps consulting their notes from when he lectured for three years covering the full counsel of God. These things aren't specified in the text, of course, but the thrust of the analogy captures this active pursuit of theological and gospel understanding, like we're doing this morning like we do in care groups and all the other gatherings. Paul knows the Ephesians are going to need supernatural strength to sustain these study and learning rhythms of a Christian life to get our 18 kids ready for church. Finally, verse 19, the first half of the verse. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In this verse... Paul is helping us grasp the vastness of the truth. The gospel is itself a kind of knowledge. But the truths within the gospel are so profound, so otherworldly, so heavenly, that at a certain point, we reach the limit of our intellect. And our earthly reference points by which we can load the truths of the gospel into our minds are left behind. Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our human memory takes what we're consciously aware of, what we know, and logs it somehow in our mental neuronal circuitry. When you think about your salvation and consider how much of the love of Christ you're consciously aware of, that you know and can recall, there's a limit. It also takes concerted effort both to maintain the knowledge we have and to grow it over time. But imagine the memory, the knowledge, and the thought capacity of God. God, an infinite being with no beginning and no end, boundless, self-sufficient, and unlimited by biological circuits or the limits of being created. Imagine how much higher his thoughts are than yours. Imagine his knowledge of your salvation. He knows when he chose you before the foundation of the world. 
He knows when he predestined you in love to be adopted into his family through faith in Christ. God knows every molecule and every molehill and every man, woman, and child whose lives he orchestrated from the Garden of Eden down through history to bring about the events by which Jesus would be crucified for your sins. Christ remembers hanging on the cross specifically for you. Because he took your name to the cross. God's memory of your salvation even contains his memory of the thousands of small and large ways that he brought the truth to your ears. He remembers when he gave you new birth by the Holy Spirit and made you alive with Christ and so on and so on. And that's just what he's revealed to us. God's love for us in Christ is so great and so unsearchable that we'll never get bored of exploring it in heaven. My kids and I always often talk about how we're worried that what if we get bored in heaven? But now we know not. So it makes sense that Paul ends his prayer this way in verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If we said, Paul, let me ask you, what gives you confidence as you pray? I mean, what if you're not good at praying like me? What if it seems like your personality doesn't jive with prayer? What would make you still choose prayer then? He might say from verses 20 to 21, prayer doesn't depend on how good you are at prayer. God's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. By the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world, the same Holy Spirit that's at work inside of you as a Christian, if you don't feel particularly good at prayer, don't focus on that. Place your confidence in the Holy Spirit who is inside you to work in you and to work through you and to do far more than you can ask or think. Besides, prayer isn't about you. Prayer is about the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus on earth and in eternity forever and ever. Amen. Let me leave you with this final picture that I hope ties everything together. What rooted and grounded really looks like. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, these two men beaten with rods, Paul and Silas, were praying and singing hymns to God. Talk about rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Even in the middle of a Philippian dungeon, Acts 16 tells us that Paul and Silas responded to their countless wounds with both prayer and praise. 
Paul and Silas stood firm in who they were in Christ against all opposition and all difficulty. As believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit was in them. While they were in prison for Christ, Christ was in them by the Holy Spirit through faith. No doubt, in that Philippian jail, Paul and Silas had cried their eyes out and probably even moaned their throats raw. Yet, the witness of Scripture remains. Not even torture or a dungeon stopped Paul and Silas from praying or singing that night. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, standing firm in Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you send your spirit to strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our inner beings, so that Christ might dwell in us through faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus for us who died on the cross for our sins in our place, condemned for nothing that he he had never done anything wrong. Help us to comprehend week by week, day by day, gathering by gathering, prayer meeting by prayer meeting. Help us to comprehend all it means that you love us. Help us to know, even though it will blow our mind, even though it will not fit in our mind. Help us to know your love. Fill us. Fill us this morning, God. We don't want to just read about it. We want to experience it today. Fill us right now, Lord God, by your Spirit. May we be filled with all the fullness of God. Not theory. Not games. Fill us with all the fullness of God. That you might be glorified through this church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.